Good, wasn't it? <clears throat> Boy, you know, just think about it just for a moment. If that would have happened three days ago, and you were getting texts today, and I know that you would take them during church, but you were getting texts today, and you heard that news, Boy, you'd be jumping out of your chair, wouldn't you? But here's, here's the thing. I think two questions would come up in my mind, probably yours too. And number, question number one, is it really true? Did it really happen? And then I'm having to think to myself, what does that really mean for me? What does that mean for the world? What does it mean for my friends? What does it really mean? I, I believe as we look at the Bible, we understand that those are the same questions that they were asking back then when it actually did happen 2,000 years ago. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, not only this week, but in the weeks to come. And we're going to be answering some questions about the resurrection and about your resurrection, when it's going to happen for you, what's going to look like, and about us overcoming death. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the hope that is within us, because all of us here need the hope that Christ brings in his resurrection. In fact, all of us here need hope. If you did not have hope in your life, you would probably uh, be in the bed somewhere today and not even wanting to get up. All of us need hope. The question is, what kind of hope do we have? And the world's kind of hope, it's kind of wishful thinking. You know, I hope things are going to get better for me. hope it's not going to rain this afternoon. I hope this, I hope that economy's going to get better. But hope in the Bible is an assurance. It's saying, I know something's going to happen in the future, and I'm looking forward to receiving it. And we've, uh, we need to understand that how we live our life is greatly dependent on what we believe our future holds. Now, for example, two people working the same job, both of them working menial tasks, one, both of them getting paid <clears throat> about $25,000 a year, maybe. And this one over here, on the one hand, thinks to themselves, I'll never get past this. This is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. <clears throat> While the other one is thinking to, my, to themselves, well, you know, I've been promised a promotion if I do a good job. In fact, I've been told I'm going to run this entire department one day. They're going to work at a different pace, and they're going to have a different hope in their life than the person who feels like they have no future. So all of us need hope. The question is, where are we going to find it? Is it real hope, or is it sort of a, a false hope in our life? Now, by the way, this Sunday morning, this Easter Sunday morning, there's no, other, there's no better time to receive Jesus Christ into your heart and receive the real hope in the Lord Jesus Christ than today, on Easter Sunday. And, of course, we always, every day is a good day, but, boy, today is just a special day. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you would walk out of this room today forgiven of everything that you've ever done and really have a hope for the present and in the future? And so at the end of this message, what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer with me, and we're going to have a word of prayer, and I'm going to ask you to ask Jesus into your heart. So that's just going to be a challenge for you today, nothing you have to do, but I'm going to give you that opportunity. We're not going to have a kind of come forward invitation this morning, but we're going to ask you to make that decision in your heart where you are. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to see this in three parts. Number one, I want us to see the importance of the resurrection as Paul explains it here in this chapter. <clears throat> then I want us to see, uh, secondly, the evidence of it. Did it really happen? And thirdly, what does that mean for us today? <clears throat> First of all, we notice in verse 1 of chapter 15, we notice the importance of it. Notice what he says. He says, Now I make known to you 
Brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which also you stand. Now, this is an interesting word that Paul uses here for communicating the gospel, the good news. And he uses the word preached. We preach to you. Now, nobody really in our day likes to be preached to. You know, we call it a speaker. We call it a teacher. But they use the word preach because of what it, not what it means today, but what it meant back then. You know, somebody says, well, you know, uh, you know, well, that was an exciting sermon. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Sort of like jumbo shrimp or something, you know, something that really you think, how, how can that ever exist? But in, the, in their day, preaching meant to herald something. See, back in, back in um, the Bible times, they didn't have internet. They didn't have a newspaper. And what they would have was a herald to go from, a door, uh, from post to post down the street and walk through the streets heralding, crying out, called a crier by some, crying out the news of the day. Well, what kind of news did they, did they, uh, they herald? Well, we better understand this by understanding what our news is today. Our news has basically two parts, soft news, hard news. The soft news is the news you can use. You know, here's the latest diet. You know, here's the fashion, the latest fashion. They have a little report on that. Sports, that's soft news. Now, hard news, on the other hand, are things that really affect your life. Terrorism reports, inclement weather, uh, murder in the streets, all these kind of things, war maybe in some cases back in that day. And so what we find here is the, is the herald would have a limited amount of time and he would have a little limited amount of voice as well and a limited amount of attention span from the audience. So the last thing he was going to do was soft news. You know, he wasn't going to cry out, you know, here's the latest fashion in Sparta, you know, or, you know, here's the sports, you know, uh, I don't know, Lions 15 and Christians nothing, something like that, I don't know. So he wasn't going to do all that soft news stuff. He was going to do the hard news. He was heralding the news that made a difference, not, not hard preaching, that's kind of a modern-day term, but hard news, news that was going to make a difference in your life, in their life. And Paul says, I'm going to share with you, and I'm going to share with you in such a way I'm going to herald to you, because only the herald is going to do hard news. And the hard news is the gospel makes a difference in your life and mine. And so as we look at this passage, he was heralding something. What was he heralding? Notice the message itself in verse 1. Make known to you, brethren, the gospel. The gospel. Then he says in verse 3, he begins to explain what that gospel is. For I delivered to you as first importance. Now you want to know what the most important thing in the Bible is. Most important verse in the Bible, most important doctrine in the Bible, dogma in the Bible, teaching in the Bible. This is it. He says, of first importance, nothing else, nothing else rivals this. Of first importance, I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Three things here. He died for our sins, according to the Scripture. He was buried to prove his death. He rose again on the third day. Now, notice the gospel message. The first thing they talk about was Jesus Christ dying on the cross. So what is the first importance? What is the gospel? It begins with Jesus dying, the Bible says, for our sins. Now, it's, it's amazing to me how uh, the, the Bible really just fits together like a glove on your hand. 
In Matthew 1.21, when Jesus was about to be born, it said this, she, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so way back when Jesus was born, they knew that this is the thing that Jesus had to take care of more than any other thing. It's not that there's not soft news. It's not that God, uh, you know, God in the Bible is not going to help you in, in these different areas of your life and application in your life. But the hard news is, is that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures for our sins. Now, when we talk about that sin, it kind of runs against counterculture to us. Because we want to feel like, and I think this all started back in about when we finished up World War II, we were feeling good about everything. And, and the last thing we wanted to do was really to recognize ourselves as sinners. That sounds so, so bad, you know, to, to think about us in that way, to think about ourselves in that way. We didn't want to feel guilty. We, we wanted to do something with our life, and we wanted to, to, to really go forward in life and not look at the past and what we had done. I've shared Christ with many, many people over the years, and many people will tell me, well, um, you know, Dwayne, I believe the Ten Commandments. I, I follow them. Well, do we follow the Ten Commandments? I mean, when we think about the law and disobeying the law and sin is anything that we do wrong, anytime we think about something too long and something that we also fail to do. But the big ten, uh, first one, have no other gods before me. Have you ever done that? Have you ever placed anything before God? I know I have. In fact, I, I have this week, every time I bellyache about something, I'm saying, I don't really accept your will, God. Something else is a little bit more important in my life. And the second one, don't make any idols. And you think, oh, I haven't done that. I haven't you know, made any statues or anything like that and started worshiping them. Well, that's part of idol worship, but the bigger part of it is to make something first in your life so long that it replaces God in your life. It's the most important thing in your life. And so many people have <clears throat> come to Christ saying, thinking to themselves, if I just receive Christ, God will then help me reach my goal. God will then help me feed my, my idol, my God, and make sure everything is okay with my life. And that's why so many people think that they maybe receive Christ and maybe, maybe they haven't. But here, the second commandment, what about third, fourth, and fifth? What about the fifth one? Honor your father and your mother. Man, if you think you've obeyed that one 100%, all I got to do is ask your mom and dad about that one, you know? Or you can ask my mom and dad. What about lying? Anyone who's ever had a wife, girlfriend, or whatever, man, you've lied. <laughs> Do I look fat in this dress? Well, you know, no, honey, no. How's my hair look? Great, great. You know, or, or, or even the ladies with the men, same thing. You know, am I the same he-man that you married? Oh, sure, sure you are. You say, well, these are just little white lies. But we've, we've lied bigger than that. Have you ever done that? I have. You have. Have you ever stolen anything? Maybe somebody's reputation even. What about coveting? That's the last one. Sort of uh, encompasses all of it. Have you ever wanted something that somebody else had? He said, sure I have. Man, I've gone through, I've looked at cars or whatever and thinking, wow, you know, look at that guy's car. I wish I had that one. Drive through neighborhoods. Ooh, I wish, you know, ladies, wish I had that home. We've always coveted something that somebody else wants. That's why we end up, some, some people end up stealing things. So really, when you think about it, we've broken all ten commandments, and the Bible says that we have, if, if not, certainly with our bodies, we've done so with our minds. And so we've broken them all. And so someone has to pay for that because 
when we sin against God, the Bible says, really, sin means miss the mark. And so we've missed the mark of perfection. And if this is the perfection line, we've come at least one and probably really hundreds and thousands. And there's a deficit there. And we're way under the line of perfection. And somebody has to make up for that debt. And that's why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. And when he hung there on the cross, the Bible tells us that the blood was a payment. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And the blood was a payment for our sins that God required. And so he, he required it, so he sent himself. Why does he require it? Because God is a just God. We're talking about justice in the world and social justice. Well, this is part of justice, that justice would be served and Whoever does the crime has to do the time, so to speak. It's even in our, in our DNA, in every country probably in the world, that somehow someone has to pay that debt. Jesus Christ came and paid the price for our sins. He paid the debt for us, and it's like this. For example, this is, uh, this is my Bible, but suppose this was my, um, my book of sins. You know, and the Bible says in the book of Revelation, at least, it says that on the last days, any sins that are not forgiven will be answered for. And so we'll just say, pretend for just a moment, I've never received Christ. And therefore, my sins are still uh, uh, there in heaven, ready to be read for all to hear. Well, this, this, is, my, this is my problem. And here's, this hand represents my life. And my life has a problem because this book of sins keeps me from having a relationship with God. This weight upon me separates me from God because the Bible says wages of sin is death. It, the death is, means separation. I'm separated from God. Now, here was Jesus. This hand represents Jesus. Whole, clean, perfect, holy in every way. He comes, he dies on the cross, and he cries out on the, uh, at one point on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that point, he took on your sins and mine. And right then, this book of sins fell upon him. Now, when God looks at me, he looks at me as clean and whole and perfect, even though I did these sins. He looks at me through the blood of Jesus Christ and looks at me as someone who has been forgiven of everything that I've ever done. Then we know that on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He, as he rose from the dead, the Bible says he conquered death for us, and the debt was paid for uh, at the cross. Now, here's the, here's the thing. The moment he rose from the dead, he proved who he was. He proved what he did was right, that he died on the cross for our sins. Now, think about it for just a moment. If you had a person that was, say, convicted of a crime, say, armed robbery, they were placed in the cell for 10 years, how do you know when they paid their debt to society? You know it because they were let out of jail. They, they were rescued from jail. They were let out of the jail cell. The chains that, that bound them there are now gone. How do you know that the debt has been paid? How do you know that Jesus Christ really died on the cross for your sins? He was let out of the cell. He was let out of the chains. He rose again on the third day. He came forth from the grave proclaiming, to heralding to everyone that anyone who trusts him can have eternal life in him and every single sin forgiven. You can walk out of here today. Know when you're forgiven of all your sins. And so the question is then, did it really happen? Seem kind of otherworldly. You may be sitting here today even thinking, you know, it just doesn't fit into my cultural thinking. Uh, it just doesn't fit into my worldview. 
Well, it didn't fit into their worldview either. And in the church at Corinth, they were basically Greek people, some Jews mixed in. And the Greeks believed the body was evil. <clears throat> so there was no resurrection there. Why would you want to resurrect something that was evil? Jews, on the other hand, believed in a resurrection, but they believed it really in the afterlife. Some of them didn't even believe in a like the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection at all, but the Pharisees and others did believe it, but it was at the end of time, not in the middle of everything. And so, really, this ran against the grain of everything that they believed. Now, you may be sitting here this morning, and you're thinking, well, I believe the teachings of Jesus, but I don't want, I want to leave him in the tomb. I mean, my goodness, you know, that's, that's hard to believe. That he would actually rise, someone, anyone would rise from the dead. And what proofs do you have anyway? I mean, why, why, would, why would you even believe anything like that? But I'm going to keep the teachings of Jesus because of all the love and the forgiveness. I mean, nobody taught like Jesus taught. And boy, if you just live by the principles of Jesus, you would have a great life. You would have a great family. And, and all that's true. But here's the thing. How can you separate the teachings of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus when the people who wrote about the teachings of Jesus are the same ones who proclaimed that he rose from the dead. Even Paul says in verses 12 through 19, he talks about it. He says, look, if, if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, we're liars. We've been lying to you. Don't believe a word that we say. Now, here's what you're saying that if you believe that, here's what you're saying about the disciples. You're saying that the disciples followed Jesus and all these teachings, and man, the love and the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace, we just want all that, and uh, we, we want to believe all that. But what they did, they got in the upper room one night, and they said, look, you know, we need to continue the teachings of Jesus. And uh, even though he's dead, and uh, somebody said, well, you know, how are we going to do that? Nobody knows it that well. They're really going to listen to us. Said, well, well, why don't we make up a story? that he rose from the dead. And then everyone would want to know what Jesus taught. So what you're believing is, is that the disciples conspired to make up a lie in order to tell the truth. I was an <clears throat> intern, had the privilege of being an intern at First Baptist Church of Atlanta years ago when I was in college. And uh, Dr. Stanley had his own parking place, Dr. Charles Stanley. And he was right beside the chapel, his first space right there at the chapel. I remember that so well. I said, how do you remember it? Well, <clears throat> I remember it this way. One night I was supposed to meet some friends there, and there was a wedding going on. I thought, well, where am I going to park? And there's only one spot left. <laughs> yes, yes, you guessed it. I backed into it, kept the car running. And the wedding was about to take place. I thought, wow, you know, this wedding, uh, you know, brought me five minutes away or something. And there's a car that starts pulling up right toward this parking space, and I recognized the car. It's Dr. Stanley. I mean, I, I hit my, my accelerator and got out of there in a hurry, hoping he would, didn't see me, who I was. But here's the thing. Here's the story I want to tell you. He was parked in that parking space one night, and somebody came along, busted out his, his, uh, his back window, and stole his Bible. I mean, how is that going to go along on the street, you know? Hey, man, what would you do today? Oh, man, I broke into a pastor's car today. <laughs> what would you do? I stole his Bible. What would you do with it? I read it. <laughs> what did it say? It said, don't steal, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, this is what you're asking me to believe about the disciples. They were crooked. They were liars. But what they said about Jesus was good stuff. Now, if they'd lie about the resurrection, why, why wouldn't they lie about the teachings of Jesus too? So why do I believe 
the Scripture. Now you say, well, don't you believe about, what about the hallucination theory? You know, they all were hallucinating when they saw Jesus. Well, it says right here in verse 6, after he appeared to more than 500 brethren. Let me tell you something. Hallucinations do not happen in groups. Just a thought. No, the accusation was the disciples stole the body and they made up the story. So why do I believe the resurrection? Well, first of all, you got Matthew. One of the disciples ran when Jesus was crucified. After the resurrection, he followed Jesus, was a disciple of Jesus, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, died a martyr's death, and before that he wrote the book of Matthew, all about the teachings of Jesus. And then there's um, Peter. It says right here in verse 5, it says, and that it appeared to Cephas, Peter, that's Peter. He said, it appeared to Peter. Here was Peter, the profane fisherman, the, the big mouth. You know, he, he's always having something to say, but also the leader of the group. He left Jesus in the lurch, denied knowing him that night at the crucifixion three times. And here was a man's life who was changed completely, inspired the writing of the book of Mark, and wrote First and Second Peter of the New Testament himself. And what about the 12? Matthew was included in that. James was included in that. Not the brother of Jesus, but James. All kinds, of, there were 12, 12 different disciples, 11, not counting Judas. And then a 12th was later added. And then there's the Apostle Paul. Look down, in fact, look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James. This is the brother of Jesus. Now, that's a miraculous thing in itself because James was not a follower of Jesus, half brother of Jesus was not a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection. Now think about it for just a moment. Here's your brother claiming to be the son of God, and you grew up with him. What would it take for you to believe your brother was the son of God? Oh, man, I don't know. He'd have to rise from the dead or something. Exactly. It'd take a lot. Since seen before more than 500 people, and finally, the Apostle Paul, and last of all, as to one who am timely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted, persecuted the church of God. You say, well, now, wait a minute. Pastor, I understand what you're saying, but this happened. I've seen the documentaries on TV. This happened decades and decades. These books were written decades after the resurrection. This book of 1 Corinthians was written 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. 20 years. That's decades, too. 20 years. Now, I want to ask you a question. How much do you believe from 20 years ago? If you're over the age of 30, don't vote if you're younger than 30, but if you're over the age of 30, how many of you remember Bill Clinton being the President of the United States? Anybody here? 20 years ago. What about, do you believe, do you remember 9-11? 15 years ago. What about the moral majority? Anybody here remember the moral majority besides me? They, they haven't done anything since the 1980s, 30 years ago. I can remember in detail 23 years ago when I was called to be the pastor of this church. Why? It was a significant thing in my life. So I rem we remember significant things. For 20 years, there were people. Let me sh share this with you. A lot of people misunderstand the book of 1 Corinthians. They think that Paul was trying to convince people that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Furthest thing from the Bible. They were sure Jesus Christ died 
uh, for their sins, and they were sure that he resurrected on the third day. It even said here in verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Some are dead. But some are still alive that saw him. You see, that's not the problem. The problem was their own resurrection. We'll get to that beginning next week. Their own resurrection. What, what, it, what it, does it mean for me that Jesus Christ died? Does that mean that I'm resurrected too? Because of their Greek um, mindset and not believing in the bodily resurrection, it was hard for them to grasp that they too would be resurrected. But there was no doubt that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Even when Paul preached in the book of Acts to King Agrippa, remember that story? Some of you remember that story. He was preaching, trying to defend himself as he was in prison. He was defending himself, and he says, King Agrippa, you know that this stuff was not done in a corner. It's not like one of those religions where a guy, said, guy says, two, three angels appeared before me. Nobody else saw it. Just take my word for it. No, it's a faith based on historical facts. And even King Agrippa said, wow, I'm going to hear you at another time. Not today. Why wouldn't King Agrippa get saved when he said, oh, you know, Infestus and all those guys, oh, almost you persuade me to become a Christian. Why? Well, if you've seen the movie recently, Risen, that soldier, fictitious story, the soldier after the resurrection, I thought to myself, now how is he going to receive, when he receives Christ, he's got so much to give up. That's why King Agrippa and Festus and all those guys in the book of Acts never received Christ as far as we know. They had so much to give up as they surrendered just themselves to the Lord. Not as much as they thought, for sure, but something. And so we look and we understand the culture was so changed, just like that, boom, overnight. You say, well, pastor, cultures have changed. America's changed. We're in a culture war. Wake up. Don't you know that? <clears throat> Listen, we've been in a culture war since the 1850s here in America. When a few people, free thinkers, started thinking like the Europeans were already thinking. But it took until the 1960s for us to feel it. 110 years it took to make the cultural shift. 110 years. Now, this was done. This cultural shift was overnight. One night, people were not believing in the resurrection, believing that Jesus Christ was dead in the grave. And the next day, they were believing in the resurrection, their, their own resurrection, not the church at Corinth, but others were, their own resurrection, entirely a cultural shift in one day. It's not done on a corner. It's not done secretly. And King Agrippa knew all the facts were laid out there. He could not refute them. So what does this mean for us today? What's the impact of it? Notice it says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. I have a mission here. Verse 2, it talks about this vanity thing, I not, did not prove vain. Verse 2 says, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. It means without effect. Paul says, 
because I understood the gospel, because I understood what Jesus Christ really means, and I, I asked him to come to my heart, it took effect. Unlike some others who maybe did it for a, the wrong reason, a different reason, it took effect. What does it mean? Wow, what would that mean? I remember when Malcolm Muggeridge tells a story, philosopher tells a story about being in Europe and uh, visiting a, a very uh, high church service. And the pastor would say at one point, Christ is risen. And the rest of the people would say, he is risen indeed. In fact, let's do that. Can we do that? A little participatory interaction here. You ready? Christ is risen. Christ is risen. A little louder. Christ is risen. And he was sitting there and thinking, all of a sudden it hit him. Wow, if he really did rise from the dead, what would that mean? We're looking at that in the weeks to come. Let me give you three quick things. Number one, forgiveness of sin. You can walk out of this room forgiven of everything that you've ever done. So it takes care of the past. Secondly, it takes care of the future. Death has lost its sting in our life. Look in verse 19. For we had hoped in Christ in this life only. If the only thing we're hoping in is in this life, he says, we are all men most to be pitied. Why? Well, we'll look at it again about the resurrection, but look in verse 55 near the end of the chapter. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's conquered death. Now think about that for just a moment. There's nothing on this earth more powerful than death. It takes us all. It wears the body down. It, it takes our life. It takes plant life, tr trees, animals, insects. In fact, the earth is winding down. The sun, it's been said, is winding down. Death takes everything. But because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he came here with a purpose in his life, to die on the cross for our sins. And he had to show us that he is not a dead Savior. He is a living Savior. He rose from the dead and conquered death for you and I and now sits at the right hand of the Father ever to pray for us. Man, that's something. He's conquered death for us all through his, it says, Paul says, by his grace. You see, if I could work my way to heaven somehow, it'd be a self-worship thing. And that's why all the stuff we, we teach sometimes, you hear churches teach about salvation, it all sounds so good. It's about surrendering, humbling ourselves and surrendering to the worship of God and saying, God, I cannot save myself. It's purely by your grace, I'm asking you to save me based upon what you did on the cross. It's a humility of heart. It's a worship of him. And if I could do it on my own, I could worship myself. It would all be about me. But it's not. It's about him, and he's conquered death. Thirdly, this hope shapes my present. What, remember what we said. How we live our life is greatly determined by what we believe and what the future holds. Because I'm not afraid to die, then I don't have to be afraid to live. Because death cannot conquer me, then life cannot conquer me. Jeremiah 29, 11 says it this way, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. 
But what is your hope really based upon? Wishful thinking or something historical that happened with promises attached all over the place to it? One last story. It happened um, in, I believe, in Los Angeles, I recall. A guy by the name of the Human Fly used to climb buildings. And um, as he climbed building, buildings, people would gather around, and that's how we made a living. Happened back in the 1950s or so. He was in Los Angeles climbing this very tall building, tallest building in the city at that time. And he got near the top, and he just looked like he got stuck. Everybody was looking at him and thinking, wow, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And for the longest time, he didn't move. It's a tragic story, but he reached over for something, grabbed it, and fell to his death. When they opened up his hand, they saw in his hand was a cobweb. He thought he was lunging for a rock, and all he got was a cobweb. Sometimes we think, oh, hope is just out there for me. Oh, hope is it's just all going to be good. And we're lunging at a cobweb. The hope that we have is based in history. It's based on eyewitness testimony. And all you have to do is respond. Jesus has done it all for you. He's done it all for me. All I have to do is respond. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would we bow our heads right now? Heads bowed and eyes closed. I shared with you at the top of this hour that uh, nothing was more important than our hope. We find that hope in Christ. And I said I would give you an opportunity to receive that hope in Christ this morning. And so I want to do that right now. As our hearts are quiet before the Lord, if you want to receive Christ into your heart, I want to give you that opportunity by praying. I'll pray out loud. You can pray silently. If you're watching by television, I invite you to do the same thing. Let's pray. Let me pray for you first. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth that you teach us today. And God, we want our hope to be sure, steadfast, and immovable. And we do that by trusting you. And so we want to call on your name today. And I pray for anyone, you're drawing them to yourself, that they would just simply open up their heart to you today. Would you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. I open up the door of my heart and I ask you to come in. Forgive me of all my sins. I trust you and you alone to save me. I just humble myself before you and ask you to help me to become the person you want me to be as I follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you look this way? I um, shared with you a few moments ago that I wasn't going to, we weren't really going to have an invitation today. We have some more music playing for you, just another song. Well, let me just share with you, if you would just take out your welcome card, okay? And maybe you have not filled this out as yet. We sort of get rapid fire sometimes, and uh, we don't really give you a chance. So start filling it out right now. Very important, front of the card. You can communicate with us as a prayer place for prayer requests on the back. Very important as we take these faithfully to the Lord every week. Everyone here 
must have members, non-members, guests. If you're a guest here, you're, you know, you're special to us today. <clears throat> My response to God's Word, you, you, God has moved in your heart in some way, but in the upper right-hand corner, it says, My Decision Today. And so if you prayed that prayer with me just a few moments ago, we want to do something to help you. We, we want to get some literature in your hands.